Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Stephanie Page, Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine, where she is the head of the Division of Metabolism, Endocrinology, and Nutrition. Dr. Page has a large clinical research program focused on male reproduction and the development of an effective and reversible male hormonal contraceptive. Her JCEM paper, Effects of 28 Days of Oral Dimethandrolone and Decanoate in Healthy Men, a Prototype Male Pill, was selected for our Women in Endocrinology series. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I know that we spoke about your research last year at Endo, actually, and you are our first recurring guest on the podcast. So it's really exciting to have the opportunity to talk to you again about your research and what has advanced in this year. So can you tell me a little bit about this paper and the implications it has for male contraception? This paper, as you alluded to, got some attention at the Endocrine Society meeting last year because the development of a male pill has been somewhat stymied by the complexities of delivering androgens to men orally. And dimethandrolone was a little bit of a breakthrough on that front because not only is dimethandrolone both an androgen, so like testosterone, but it also has progestin qualities. And we know from years of work from others and and from our group at the University of Washington, that a combination of testosterone and a progestin can work effectively as a reversible male hormonal contraceptive. So this was a really exciting paper for us to be part of because we were able to show that men who took dimethandrolone undecanoate every day did not have significant side effects and that the medication was really well tolerated meaning they didn't have any trouble with their liver or with nausea or other things that sometimes individuals have when they take oral medications, particularly oral androgens. So that was exciting. And then probably me even more importantly for the development of a contraceptive, we showed that the hormonal changes that occurred with taking this steroid on a daily basis for a month were really compatible with the suppression of sperm production. So we didn't show this in a month's time. We anticipate that that will take about three months of taking the drug, but we're able to show these profound changes in gonadotropins and in testosterone production in these men, again, without significant side effects of, for example, low testosterone in this study. So that was really exciting and a bit of a breakthrough, we like to think, in the field of developing particularly a male pill. I'm curious about the hormonal changes that you saw that were compatible with sperm suppression. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you were measuring and how this impacts sperm suppression? The men who took the dimethandrolone every day had profound suppression of gonadotropins, so LH and FSH, which are the signals from the pituitary to the testicle that promote and are required for normal sperm development. So when those hormones are suppressed, the testicle no longer makes testosterone. And without that high intratesticular concentration of testosterone, sperm maturation is uh, suppressed. And so what we measured in the study was LH and FSH in the man's blood as well as testosterone. And the men had profound suppression of LH, FSH, and of testosterone production. So despite the fact that they had 
castrate levels in some cases of testosterone in their blood, they didn't have symptoms of castration or hypogonadism, which might include things like hot flashes, significant decreases in libido or mood, fatigue, and so forth. But they didn't have those symptoms really at all. And that's because the dimethandrolone that we were giving them, as I mentioned, is an androgen itself. So it was providing the androgen effects in the rest of the body outside of the testicle that testosterone would usually provide. So the exciting thing here was that they had these very low levels of testosterone, very low LH and FSH, and did not have profound symptoms of hypogonadism. So that sounds really exciting. You were getting the sperm suppression that's required without the negative side effects. Oh, and let me be clear. We weren't seeing sperm suppression. We were seeing suppression of hormones, so suppression of LH, FSH, and testosterone. The final stages of sperm maturation in the testicle take 72 days. And so this was only a four-week study. So we did not see marked suppression of sperm production with just the 28 days of administration. And that's really consistent with other studies of hormonal methods of male contraception. It usually takes sometimes six, but more like eight to 12 weeks to really see profound sperm suppression when we administer these types of hormones to men. So it wasn't unexpected that we didn't see sperm suppression in a month, but I want to be clear that we haven't actually demonstrated that yet. So do you have ongoing studies or do you have plans for an ongoing study that's going to look beyond this one-month study? We do. So we actually uh, currently have a three-month study, which is ongoing. We work very closely with our colleagues, Christina Wang and Ron Swordloff at LA Biomed in Los Angeles. And together, we're here at the University of Washington and UCLA. We're recruiting 100 men, so 50 at each site. We've recruited almost half of them at this point. And the participants are enrolled for three months. So they take the dimethandrolone for three months, and we're measuring sperm concentration throughout the study. It's a, it's a blinded study. We're actually still testing a few different doses in this study, and we do have a placebo group. Uh, so I can't tell you anything about the results yet, but we anticipate that we'll complete enrollment uh, in the early fall, so stay tuned. Oh, that is very exciting. Yeah, I think that the whole the scientific community will be very interested in your results from that longer-term study. I hope so. Crossing our fingers. <laughs> You know, we do have a lot of experience with hormones and sperm concentration, so we're very hopeful. You know, that's why we do the experiments. So, yeah, stay tuned, and we're excited to share those when they're available. Is there anything about your work or maybe additional projects that you're working on that you would like to uh, share with our audience? So, again, with our colleagues at UCLA and our sponsor, NICHD, and Diana Blythe is involved in these studies as well. We have a couple other studies going on, which we think are really exciting in terms of developing new methods of contraception for men. We're actually testing dimethandrolone as an injectable, hoping, like others who have historically, to develop a long-acting injection for men that might be an effective contraceptive. Uh, And then probably most exciting is that we are part of a multinational trial, uh, including sites in England, Sweden, Italy, Kenya and Chile, as well as three sites in the U.S. that are actually testing transdermal formulation of nestrone and testosterone. It's a combined gel product, actually testing it as a contraceptive in real use. So this is a study that's enrolling couples. We've done the preliminary work demonstrating that the Nest Test gel 
suppresses sperm production, and now we're actually testing it as a contraceptive in couples. So we've started enrolling for that study. It's a big study with about 400 couples, we hope, across the globe. And uh, that one will take a little bit longer because the couples are using the product for a year and their total enrollment time is almost two years. So that'll be a little bit longer coming, but we're very excited to be including our international partners and really to be testing something as a contraceptive. So hopefully those results will be uh, available in the coming years. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. And that's a, a much larger study than the study on the oral dimethandrolone in men has been so far. It is. So the Nestest gel is further along in development. So the study that we talked about uh, for dimethandrolone is still sort of phase 1B, maybe early phase 2, and that product is further along in development. So yes, it's a bigger study, a more complicated study, but when we ask men across the globe what kinds of products they'd be most interested in for contraceptives, the pill is certainly high on that list. So that's one of the reasons that we think developing a method like that for men is important. But like women, we anticipate that men and couples will be interested in all kinds of male contraceptives. So having a gel for some men, a long-acting injection that somebody else might prefer, and a pill for others is really the goal here. We're trying to we and others in the field are really trying to create a menu of contraceptive options for men. And hopefully these two products will be part of that menu. Having choice always sounds like a good thing for um, these kinds of treatments. Yeah, you know, there's lots of data on women. That, you know, the more contraceptive options that are available, and some of that, of course, has to do with access, but the more contraceptives are used. And you know, the goal for everyone here is to ensure that all pregnancies are planned pregnancies. So you know, there's no reason to think men are any different than women in that regard. And so we really want to create lots of choices for men. I now want to switch gears a little bit and talk about this recent work that's been included in this Women in Endocrinology collection of papers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own experience as a woman researcher in this field. Do you have any advice for women, especially early career scientists, Sure. So I have been working on male hormonal contraception since I was an endocrine fellow starting in 2002. And I was really fortunate to sort of fall into this field because there's a long-standing group here at the University of Washington that was led by my mentor, William Bremner. And one of the things that really attracted me to this type of work is I wanted, I had done actually quite a bit of basic science. I had done a PhD in immunology and I was really interested even though I loved the lab and doing those kinds of experiments, I was really interested in trying to do work in humans and learning how to do clinical trials because I wanted to be a little closer to that translational science and the interface between science and medicine. And, uh, you know, this field was very attractive because it really directly, we hope, addresses an unmet need in medicine. But I think just as important as that was the, really the team environment that Bill and others here at UW had created for our group. So really had a, an attitude of cooperation, uh, not of competition within the research trainees that were in the group that was uh, maybe a little different than some of the labs that I'd been in, and I'd been in three or four of that by that point. So I really valued that, and I felt like everybody had everybody else's best interest in mind, which, which to me at that stage in my career was really important since I was a young woman who was thinking about starting a family and wanted to be surrounded by people that were going to be 
looking out for the science as well as for the, the people involved. So there were a lot of reasons that I chose to be in this field. And again, a lot of them were very personal. But I think a recurring theme for women and for men, frankly, is mentorship. And I was really fortunate to have uh, excellent mentors here who got to know me as a person as well as a scientist. So I always advise people to really look at the team they're joining and make sure it's a team that they want to play on because that really in the day-to-day stresses that we all have at work is one of the things, at least for me, that has really helped my work environment be a valuable part of my life. So, you know, we talk a lot about mentorship. Mentors can be men and they can be women. uh, So long as you really feel like it's a relationship that is going to move you forward in the work you do. Yeah, I really like this idea about mentors. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on how someone, especially starting off as an early career scientist, what kinds of things can they be looking for in a mentor? Or are there any specific questions that someone should be asking when they're trying to choose who to be a mentor? So that it's, you know, it's a really important question and it's a really common question. I think one of the things that's really important is to ask other people that are in their working group how they, you know, what their experience has been. And if people are reticent to answer that question, then I think that that is an answer in and of itself. So I think it's really important to query people about really even just basic things. How much time do you actually spend with this person? Are they available to help troubleshoot experiments or hiccups in the IRB application or or what have you. And if they're not there, have they actually deputized someone who you also feel like is really dedicated to you as a mentor? Sometimes, you know, mentors can be pretty detached, but that can work so long as there's somebody else who is there for these sorts of day-to-day questions and so forth. I think the other thing that can't be underestimated is that it's absolutely critical to have mentors at your institution and in your very close working environment. But one thing that I've really benefited from, and you know that actually is exemplified in this paper, is having colleagues and in some ways actually even mentors that are actually outside of my institution. And again, that's from my primary mentor really introducing me to other people in the field. And really, you know, at meetings like the Endocrine Society, actually taking you to the dinner that they're going to with their colleagues so that you get to have new relationships with other, perhaps more senior individuals at other institutions. So really opening those doors rather than having it be this, you know, I hate to say it, but old boys club that you're sort of on the outside until you get to some certain point. And I think uh, my mentor here, Bill Bremner, was really exemplified that always really being very inclusive to any trainee who was involved in the work. And then my colleague, Christina Wang, who is the other senior author on this paper, uh, and her colleague and actually husband, Ron Swerdloff, have also been mentors for me, just being in this very collaborative environment. And Christina, as a woman, I mean, it's been great to be able to talk with her about all kinds of issues, science-related and otherwise, and just have another perspective from someone who I really have a great deal of respect for uh, and just sort of sometimes talking about how one gets through these minefields of life. No, thank you very much. It's really nice to hear your perspective. And I think that this is really great advice, um, especially for those starting off in their careers. The whole idea of finding mentors and building those relationships is very valuable. So thank you very much for sharing your experience.
Yeah, I, and I think the other thing is we do talk about mentors, but we also have to be our own advocates. And so we all need to put forth our confident selves. And that, again, is part of getting in these situations and networking in those ways. It, it, you, we all tend to be a little bit like, oh, I don't know enough. I, I can't talk to that person because they're not going to think that I'm smart enough. Or, um, And I think we as scientists need to be willing to be really engaged in those conversations and be confident in our, and not afraid to ask questions and confident in our, our own abilities and our own knowledge to break into those discussions. I think that's really, really critical as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from my own experience, being at a science conference, it sometimes is difficult to actually approach someone, to approach someone that you've been reading about or you know their papers, and to approach them and actually have those conversations about the science, about your own work, or if you want to troubleshoot. Um, it can sometimes be really daunting to approach someone and um, start that conversation. Oh, it sure can be. It can be so intimidating. And um, But the more you do it, the easier it gets, for one thing. And and also, when one has a bad experience, because these things happen, we scientists, like everyone else, are quirky, and, and so it might not go well the first time or the second time, but I think women in particular have a, a tendency to say, oh, it's because I'm not this, or I didn't do this, or and uh, you just got to keep putting yourself out there, and, uh, and remember when you're presenting your own work that nobody knows it better than you do, so I, I just think women really need to hear that again and again and just keep going for it. I think that this field of male hormonal contraceptive development, if you look at where it was 25 years ago, Christina Wang was one of only a couple uh, women in the field. And now if you look at this paper from that we published last year and you look at the authors, I think at least half of them are women. And the first author and the two senior authors are women. So uh, I like to think that we're seeing parallel things in other fields of endocrinology. And I think it's particularly important. I mean, clinically, women are very well represented in endocrine, less so in research for sure, and less so in leadership, which is a theme we see throughout many professional fields. So, you know, it's great to see these changes, but we just need to continue to to try and foster leadership among women in research and particularly in endocrine research. So hopefully these kinds of series will help to foster that culture and nurture that culture. Thank you very much again for taking the time to talk to me about your work as well as your experiences and these messages to women to be advocates for themselves and to um, try to find mentors for their work. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for uh, doing this. It's great. And thank you for including me. That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening. To learn more and to find links to Dr. Page's paper in the Women in Endocrinology series, you can find this episode on our webpage, www.endocrine.org podcast. There, you can also listen to our previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.